before we turn to God's word together as the church. And let's look to God in prayer and let's ask our God for help and mercy. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We um, are so grateful uh, that you have given us scripture. What evidence that you love your people and love your church. That you have given this, uh, us this book that shows uh, your concern and reveals something of your character and goodness. Lord, in, in scripture we learn of uh, the boy Samuel uh, hearing your voice um, three times and not recognizing. Uh, Lord God, that can be the case for us. Uh, we pray that it would not be. We pray this morning that as you speak from your word, that you would speak in power, that you would speak into our lives, that you would address us, Lord, at the point of need. Some of us need to be challenged in our sin. Some need to be comforted. There are some, Lord, perhaps in here who need uh, to see Christ for the very first time. And so we pray that as we study uh, these verses, Lord God, that you would give us ears to hear from you. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Great. Okay, in the no, 1530s, in the 1530s, 16th century, uh, John Calvin, we know who we're dealing with there, the very famous uh, reform preacher. In the 1530s, John Calvin was forced to leave the church that he loved, and in the late 19, uh, 15, 1930s, the late 1530s, uh, John Calvin was even kicked out of the city that he loved. Calvin was kicked out at that time of Geneva, booted out of the city. Uh, what happened? Things changed. Fast forward three years, and those in that city had had a dramatic change of mind and a change of heart. And what they did three years later was implore Calvin to come back, travel back, and join them again in Geneva. So what would Calvin do? I, as a minister, love what John Calvin did. What John Calvin did was accept their invitation. And on the first Sunday back, Calvin climbed all the way up to his pulpit. And he picked up from exactly the place that he had left off uh, all those years before. That is dedication to a sermon series, you know? Three years later, and it's as I was saying. <laughs> Three years later, and he picks up from exactly where he left off. Well, believe me, for the very first time in my life, and it will never happen again, but for the first time in my life, I feel a tiny little bit uh, like John Calvin this morning because I've been away from the congregation uh, for a little while. But what do I want to do this morning? What I want us to do right now is to pick up from exactly the place that we left things a few weeks ago. So you get the idea, even though it's the summer holidays, even though there's plenty of people away, don't want us to have little isolated sermons. No, 
I want us to return to that account that we were studying for those weeks and months. You remember it, I hope. And I want us to return to the latter part of Genesis and to this wonderful story, and it's the story of Joseph. Okay, so we return uh, to Genesis. Fine, great. But I think because of this break that we've had, perhaps it is imperative that we very, very briefly remind ourselves of what was happening and what we've seen. Don't you agree? A lot has happened. So where were we? What was occurring? What was happening in this story? Well, if you were here uh, over that course of sermons, you remember that we follow Joseph through thick, thin, didn't we? I mean, we saw his trials. Come on. He was mistreated, wasn't he, by his brothers? Sold into slavery. He was spending time in an Egyptian jail. Then God acted. God exalted him to a place of incredible prominence through that incredibly uh, severe famine that was in the land. Yes. Now, I am sure that you can remember the more recent chapters of Genesis, can you? Because of this famine, Joseph's brothers, they travel down to Egypt in search for some food. And after Joseph tests them. Do you remember what has occurred recently? Joseph had, at long, long last, he has revealed his identity to these brothers. And then he sends them off, doesn't he? On a mission to get their father in Canaan and bring the father and the family back down to live with him in Egypt. And if you're sharp and you're on it this morning, and in light of the previous reading, Do you remember what we looked at last time? Where did we leave things? We left things with Jacob traveling south, this elderly man traveling south with all of his family, all of his belongings. Remember the tension? Imagine the journey. Where is he going? He's traveling south soon to clasp eyes on this beloved son that he thought was gone and lost forever. That's what we've seen. What's next? What does God have for us this morning? Well, I would invite you, uh, if you've got a copy of the Bible on your phone or a physical copy, please to turn uh, with me. We're going to go through 46, 47, or part of both of those uh, chapters. And the first thing that I think that really stands out here, what we see, first of all, is an emotional reunion. Didn't we see that here? An emotional reunion. Um, Okay, even as I say that word to you, reunion, are you not with me uh, when I say that that is a much more uh, relevant, alive word to us now than it would have been even four or five years ago? I'm sure you can see what I mean. Because of COVID, it's probably the case, perhaps it's the case that all of us in the room maybe most of us in the room, have had special reunions over the last couple of years with family, with friends that came out of that unnatural period of lockdown that we had with COVID. We know what it's meant by having a reunion, don't we? Well, here, as Jacob finally gets to see and meet his son, after we're talking about 20 years here of thinking that he's gone, 
Isn't it a special reunion? So what should we notice about this? What should we think about? Can I I point you to one or two things about the reunion, please? If if you look at verse 28, you'll see that the first thing that Jacob does is he sends on one of his sons ahead of him. Do you notice that? I think it's to ensure that everything goes according to plan. It's the right thing to do. He sends on one of his sons. That's the first thing. Then we're given an insight into how, just how big a deal this was. Do you notice that in the way that the account is told, there are extra details given to us? I think we see that in verse 29 in particular. We're told things like Joseph prepared himself and he prepared his chariot. Do you see how the tension is building? This is a significant moment as he's going to meet his dad and his dad is going to meet him. But I think it's the actual meeting itself that draws our attention and is so key. Because do you not agree with me, if you've been here in uh, this sermon series, that Joseph is clearly not a Scottish Highlander? You know, Joseph is clearly not from south of the border even. There is with Joseph and the way he conducts himself, there's not pent-up emotion, is there? I say that as a Scottish Highlander. And there's not a stiff upper lip ever, is there? Like, do do you notice when he sees his dad and his dad sees him? Do, Do you notice what it's like here? It's such a passionate occasion, isn't it? And, and, and he falls, there's falling on a neck, as there has been previously. But do you see it's different here? Like there, there is, it's sustained, this embrace. And it's an embrace through tears, isn't it? Don't you think it's beautiful? Now, time and time again in this sermon series, we have seen, I think, that Genesis, the book of Genesis, is like a vehicle isn't it? Genesis is a book of the Bible that drives us and takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And that is definitely the case in this portion of Scripture. But how? Come on, how would you answer that? As we look at this section of Scripture, as we think about this reunion, how are we taken by Genesis to Jesus Christ? What would you say? I think partly you would say to me, but we see Christ, Andy, in the mention here of a forerunner. Because I got it wrong, didn't I? If you're very careful with the text, maybe you see it. What did I say? I said that Jacob, he sends on one of his sons to secure this meeting. That's not what the text says. Look at verse 28 again. Do do you see it? We can put it up on screen, verse 28. It says, Jacob sent Judah on ahead. Do you see, it's not just one of the sons. Nor is it the eldest son, Reuben. No, no, no. It is Judah that's saying, oh, does that not take us to the work and the person of Jesus Christ? I want to say this to you, friends. We are all due to meet God in death. All of us. But what has Jesus Christ done for us? What does Scripture say that Jesus has done? The lion from the tribe of Judah, Judah's greatest descendant, has gone on before you. What does Scripture say? What does Hebrews, how does Hebrews describe Jesus? Jesus Christ is our forerunner on our behalf. He has already secured the warmest welcome 
from our God for us in death. So we see Christ, do we not, in this picture of Judah, but more than that, do we not also see Christ in this picture of Joseph that we've got here? See, I I want to say this to you, and, and I know you know this, but I also know that by our sinful nature, we seek to suppress this truth all the time, and it's this, that our lives on this earth are so short. The older people in this congregation If you don't believe that, they will tell you that our lives on this earth are are but a breath. And Christian friend, I need to say this to you, that in no time whatsoever, in no time at all, like here, you are going to know the embrace of the beloved son. You will know this for yourself. I firmly and passionately believe that we are supposed to consider that from this portion of Scripture. You see this phrase that we've got here, this phrase that Joseph, for this reunion, he presents himself. Or it depends what translation of the Bible you've got. It could say that Joseph appeared to Jacob. You see that phrase there, that more often than the Bible, is actually used for an appearance of God himself. Indeed, that word, that phrase, is used in the Greek translation of the Scriptures later on for that moment in the end where we will see Christ. It's used for the appearance of Jesus Christ. Do you not see what we are being pushed to consider? Christian friend, although like Jacob, we are undeserving, you and I in death are going to know the sweetest reunion with the beloved son. You, Christian friend, although you are utterly ill-deserving, you are going to know the warmest welcome from the Christ. It is going to be for you like it was for Stephen in the book of Acts. I think we probably all know that story, don't we? Do you know it? Stephen is dying. And he is being martyred for the faith and and grace and goodness. God gives him this vision. Can we all remember the vision? What does he see? But he sees his Lord, the beloved son. And Jesus Christ is standing at the right hand of the Father. Why is he not seated? Why is Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father? It's more than just a posture of intercession and posture of prayer, isn't it? Jesus stands at that moment to welcome him. He stands to receive Stephen. And you understand, don't you, Christian friend? That is how it shall be for you in death. No, this, Genesis 46, is how it shall be that you shall fall on the neck of the beloved son and it will be sustained and we will cry with joy and delight in that reunion and the beloved son he will wipe away every tear from our eyes we see in genesis 46 an emotional reunion second we see an elaborate plan an elaborate plan, um, without question, uh, but probably showing my age a little bit. Without question, one of the, the best 
TV characters, I think, in the last uh, 30, 40 years. One of the best TV characters is the cigar-smoking, scheming uh, Hannibal uh, from the the leader of the A-team. If you're of a certain vintage and you can remember Hannibal uh, from the A-team, perhaps you can even remember uh, his big catch, his catchphrase, his tagline. I won't get the congregation to say it in unison. But uh, what does he say? He's sitting there and he looks at B.A. or he looks at Murdoch and uh, he loves it when a plan uh, comes together, doesn't he? Loves it when a plan comes together, does Hannibal. In the portion of Scripture we have, it is our protagonist, Joseph, who has an important plan. Did we pick up on it? What's the plan? You see, previously mention has been made of this family, Jacob and his family, coming south. And it's not coming south to live in Egypt. No, the idea was that there would be one particular part of Egypt where this family would settle. Do we remember that from previous sermons? That it was Goshen where where Jacob would settle. So what's, what's Joseph's plan? His plan is to ensure that that area of Egypt is indeed secured for his family. My question, I suppose, here is why? Don't you have that question a little bit? Like, why is it so, so important that it's Goshen that is secured for this family? I mean, you've noticed in the text, have you, that it is important? Do you notice that Joseph sends five of, hands selects five of his brothers to send them in to plead with Pharaoh that they would get Goshen? And you right now, if you've got scripture in front of you, you just need to scan over the page here to see how many times Goshen is mentioned. It's nearly every verse. Do you see what we're asking? The text, well, why is this so important? What should we be thinking about this land? Can I again mention a few things. One, first thing, really important, the land of Goshen was separate. I think I've mentioned this to you in the past. The land of Goshen was slightly removed from the bulk of Egyptian population. So Goshen was away up there in the east. Do you, Christian friends, see how ideal that makes it? Slightly removed from the people? This ensures that this family can live and not intermingle with the world. They can live in Goshen and they will not intermarry with Egyptians. So this land, do you see? It's separate. That's the first thing. Second thing about Goshen is that it was special. Can I I ask you to look at 47 verse 6? If we could maybe put it up on the screen if you don't have a copy of it, if you're visiting or whatever. Look at what Pharaoh says here. Might ring a bell with you. So what does he call Goshen? Do do you see it? In the, what does he say? Settle your father and brothers and what? The best of the land. Something again that we've heard before. So do you see what that tells you? Why Goshen? Because it was a particular fertile part of Egypt. This was a prosperous place. Do you see why that's ideal? This will ensure that this family will grow and flourish and develop into what? This great nation that God had promised that they would become. 
So you with me so far? So why Goshen? It's separate, it's special. The third and the last thing here that I want us to appreciate is that Goshen was a temporary residence. I do not want anyone in this room just now to go away or be under the illusion or make the mistake that Jacob and his family were moving to Goshen on a permanent basis. Don't make that mistake. That was never, ever part of Joseph's plan. Okay, Goshen is ideal. (laughs) It's ideal for the present need, but the plan was always that one day Israel and this family would go back to Canaan, would go back where? They would be in Goshen, but eventually move on to the promised land again. Now, this is great, but what question do we ask? We ask, is Joseph like Hannibal? Does this plan come together? Well, look at it with me. What's said in in, in verse 5? Do you see? Not on the basis of the five brothers so much, but on the basis of the character of Joseph, Pharaoh declares, yes. He says to Joseph and Jacob and the brothers, you can have this temporary, ideal land. Now, I think it is, is beautiful, this provision. I wonder, and I've wrestled with this all week, I I wonder sincerely if at this point here, we are not receiving something of a rebuke from the Lord God of heaven and earth. As we consider Goshen, are we not rebuked? Because you you know what we're like as, as Christians in 21st century, perhaps more than ever before, Christians, we are great at expressing our discontent at our present circumstances, aren't we? We are good at moaning about the church. We're good at moaning about our congregation. We are good at moaning about the church wider, church universal. We are great at doing this. But as we come in and as we consider these things in God's provision, are we not given cause to thank God? Are we not given cause to worship God for the church? Do we not see here a picture of the loveliness of the church of Jesus Christ? Because what has God done for us? But has he not today spiritually settled us in the land of Goshen? Is that not where we are? That though this, all of this, though this be a temporary home until we move on, to the promised land on the basis of the beloved son. What has God done but for us? He has settled us in a fertile land. That though I know as well as anybody that the church is imperfect, that though that be the case, what has God done in provision and grace that he has given us these pasture lands, these fertile lands, where we can grow into a great nation. These fertile lands where we can go and pursue holiness. He has given us a spiritual Goshen where we can be in the world, but not off the world. And so, are we not rebuked in our attitude to our brothers and sisters? Are we not rebuked in our attitude to the church? Consider God's provision by grace. He has secured by his beloved son for his family an ideal and temporary abode before you and I move on to truly live with God. 
So we see an elaborate plan. Thirdly, we see an encouraging providence. An encouraging providence. Um, folks, do you like the summer? Do you, do you enjoy the summer months? Some do, some don't. I think, uh, and there are so many people in this category and in this boat, but I think that if you are going through a hard time of it in the workplace, um, if you're going through a hard time um, with personnel and work and with the work itself, I think the summer months, oh, there's pros and cons, aren't there, if you're in that position? There's an obvious upside for the summer, isn't there? If you're in a hard place at work, sometimes in the summer you can get a little break uh, from that. That's great, isn't it? What's the flip side of that coin? Oh, yeah, after a break, there's the Sunday night blues, right? And there's the Monday morning blues. And after this lovely break, you have to go back into that difficult situation with difficult personnel and difficult circumstances. Are you there? I, I do not minimize for a second how difficult that can be. Really, really difficult. But I do think that God gives you genuine encouragement. Uh, here in this portion of scripture. See, consider with me what you see in this chapter of the providence of God. Everyone got it? Of the sovereign control and the, the providence of God. Now, there, there's the idea, God's providence. If I was to ask you just now, where do you see God's providential hand in this portion of scripture? What would you say to me? Where do you see God's providence? Again, I think you might say, well, we see it in his control of human leaders. Because <laughs> is it not almost funny? I mean, is it not almost humorous to see what God has Pharaoh do? <laughs> Such as the sovereign control of God. He moves Pharaoh, so Pharaoh gives away for nothing the very best of his land to God's people. Do you see the sovereign control of that? Indeed, if you look at it carefully in verse 6, God even has Pharaoh give this family the privilege of being royal herdsmen. Look, from a human perspective, people, on a human level, that makes no sense that Pharaoh would give all of this away. So you would say that. But more, do we not see God's providence and his sovereignty in Jacob's family's occupation? And the job that they do? Because, uh, okay, Pharaoh gives the land. Why? Come on, in, in worldly terms, stick with me. In worldly terms, why does Pharaoh give this land away? It must have jumped out at you. I mean, it's, it's, in some ways, it's the most bizarre detail, isn't it? I mean, we're told that Jacob's family are shepherds. There's their occupation, they're shepherds. And then what's the detail that we're given in verse 34, chapter uh, 46. You, you all got it. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Shepherds were an abomination to Egyptians. Did it not stick out to you? Shepherds, an abomination. Now, does that sound strange? Can we not begin to understand what's going on here? The Egyptians, they, they were very skeptical of nomadic people. So the Egyptians, they looked on at shepherds, herdsmen, and they thought of them, yes, as being untrustworthy. But, you know, there's no two ways about it. Uh, they thought of them as being unclean. Okay? They're dirty folk. That was the idea. And so from a worldly perspective, you can see 
Pharaoh. He says, oh, they're going to move away a little bit and be separate. Hey, that, that's fine with me, but don't you see what God himself has done? Do you see the providence from before the dawn of time? From before the creation of the world, God has foreordained that this family would be from a line of shepherds. He has foreordained that that would be the case. And why? Partly because he knows he will not use them in this occupation for their prospering, and he will use that occupation for the glory of his great name. And so, am I not right? Is that not of encouragement to you? If you're struggling in the workplace, is that you? Is it really tough? It's Monday morning, always brutal for you. Really tough members of staff to deal with. Then you must, Christian friend, rest in the providential care of the Almighty God. God has, from the dawn of time, ordained that you will be in your present occupation for this time at least. And God has his purposes in that. And so as you look at it, as you consider God's love for you, his providence, allow that to renew your energy for work. Allow it to reshape your attitude to work because praise God in his grace, as hard as it might be, God really can use you there. He can prosper you there spiritually and he can use you for his glory. And then the last thing, fourth thing, uh, an eschatological perspective. We've seen an emotional reunion. We've seen an elaborate plan, an encouraging providence, an eschatological, if you're taking notes, eschatological you're on your own. I can't even say it, never mind spell it. Uh, but if you're taking notes, we'll pray for you. An eschatological perspective. And here, although we come right to our fourth point, the last point, I wonder if you can recognize that in some ways for our section, this is the third act. Do you notice that? Or it's the third meeting. Can we see that at least? Think about it. Jacob has met with Joseph. Significant moment. Then Joseph's brothers have met with Pharaoh. Significant moment appealing for Goshen. Then we come to the third act. And believe me when I say it is the meeting of giants. Isn't it? What's the third act? Now the elderly patriarch Jacob. This elderly man, he is brought in. Brought in. Has to be in his old age brought in for a meeting or an audience with Pharaoh himself. You see it? These, the meeting of giants. Now, as we look at this, as we ponder this meeting, it is the faith of Jacob that really comes to the fore. That's what's in the spotlight. That's what's underlined. Let me show you how. A few things. One, note Jacob's lack of awe at worldly power. Because how are you going to be? Come on, this afternoon, you've got a meeting with Pharaoh. <laughs> this man who is viewed as a god by his people. He's got all the power available to him. He's a fickle man. 
kills people left, right, and center. How are you feeling about that this afternoon? Can I tell you how I would be feeling? My wee Scottish knees knocking together, right? My quaking in my size nines. And is that what you see from Jacob? Not a little bit. Where even his sons were bowing and they were declaring themselves to be the servants of Pharaoh. There's none of that whatsoever from Jacob. Indeed, do you notice how the roles are reversed here? You think he should be quaking, but it's actually Pharaoh who is showing all the deference to Jacob. Did you notice? It's Pharaoh who's, who's asking questions of, of Jacob. It's Jacob who's in the exalted position where he is able to bless Pharaoh. There's, there's no awe and wonder at worldly power. What fee to? Did you notice his lack of excitement about worldly possessions? Because uh, what stage of life are we at just now, friends? What about you? Is retirement on the horizon? Enjoying retirement? Are you saving for retirement? Do you have lots of hopes and dreams for retirement? Well, you just think about Jacob for a moment. How's this? In his old age, he's suddenly just learnt he's inheriting the best of the land of Egypt, the most fertile prosperous land. That's the equivalent of, here you go, millions of pounds for your retirement. And how does he respond? Do you notice it in the text? Do you know what, notice what he says about all of these worldly possessions? Listen to what he says about it. Nothing. No mention at all before Pharaoh of this. He doesn't even mention it. His heart, his attention, his desire is clearly somewhere else. And I think you and I can see exactly where his heart is. If you notice how Jacob, in this interaction, how he describes life itself. So to end, let's all look at verse 9. Can we put it up on the screen, please? See if you can get it. I mean, first of all, he's asked a question that none of us want to be asked, isn't he? Don't you think so? He's looking rather elderly, and so Pharaoh says, whoa, how, how old are you? None of us want to be asked that question. How does he respond? So yes, he speaks of the brevity of life. Man, he speaks about the hardships that he has endured in life. I'm asking you, though, how does he describe it? Sticks out, he repeats what life is in his view. Do you notice the word? It is a sojourn. It is a journey, and a journey is somewhere else. Do you see how critical that is? Here is a man, this patriarch, this elderly man, and he quite simply is looking ahead. His mind is ahead. His heart is elsewhere. That Though Jacob will go on to live, I think it's for another 17 years from this point, he is already yearning for what is ahead of him in death. Hebrews 11 confirms that. Hebrews 11 looks back on this event, these events here, and says of it that these men, Jacob, was yearning for a heavenly country, a dwelling place with his God. So I end this sermon 
by asking you, Christian friend, is that you? Is that us? Are we yearning for what is ahead? I think we should be, because very, very, very soon, we're going to see Jesus. Very soon, we are going to know that tender embrace of the beloved son. Very soon, all of Goshen is past. It, it, it all goes. Very soon, we are going to fall on the neck of Jesus, our beloved Savior, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Should we not live with our eyes raised? Should we not, as sojourners, pilgrims passing through, should we not live in light of that coming day? Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. We thank you for the gospel of God. We thank you that though we cannot climb any ladder, we thank you that you have come down to us in the person of your son. We thank you that you have lived for us, securing this heavenly country for your people. We thank you that you have paid the penalty for our sin and your death. We thank you that you are risen for our justification. God, we thank you that soon it shall be that we will see Jesus, that we will know that sweet reunion with the beloved Son. Lord, will you use us in the time that we have on this earth for your glory? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.